to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so uh, I just want to welcome you uh, again here today. Happy Independence Day. This is an exciting day uh, in our country. Uh, it's exciting uh, opportunity to celebrate. And I'm glad that you guys are here with us, whether it's online or whether it's in person, because um, I think the church kind of does uh, one of two sort of weird things around this time of year. One is uh, is to you know have the marching bands come in and big American flags and uh, y- you know do some some weird kind of conglomeration between the kingdom of God and the nation that we're in uh, and try to say, hey, we're the new Israel, uh, and, and, and that's, that's, you know, one ditch. The other ditch is to say, hey, we don't even like this place. America's Babylon. America's Rome. And so, like, they're evil, wicked. Let's just, you know, every other country is probably better than we are. Um, and, and so, you know, kind of the self-loathing. And I think that they're, uh, both of those ditches um, have some truth in them, but also some error. And so I think it's important for us to come in on, on a day like today and recognize and reorient that if you're in Christ, you are absolutely part of a kingdom that transcends borders. That your citizenship is in heaven, and yet also, this is a great place. America is an awesome country to get to be a part of. Um, we, last night, my family uh, watched um, uh, Hamilton. It's now like a new uh, J- July 3rd tradition for us, two years in a row on Disney Plus. And, and just the story of our nation and its founding and, and, and declaring independence from uh, Britain and from the, the evil King George is, is, I think, incredibly compelling and has, has led to some pretty awesome flourishing. And, and yeah, there's some stuff that's imperfect too. And so today we're going to be in Psalm chapter 2 because we're going to continue a series that we're kind of doing all summer in the Psalms. And and as we do that, you're going to hear today probably like the national anthem or at least Lee Greenwood's God Bless America or something like that. Um, But but this psalm, in, in the book of Psalms, Psalms is an anthology of different types of songs to help the people of God think feel and relate to God, relate to the world around them, relate to themselves, even process emotions, pain, excitement. But but this psalm in particular is a foundational one that sets the tone for how we're to understand our corporate identity, how we're to understand how the world works in relate uh, as it relates to, to a good and perfect God. And so Psalm 2 as it were, is like a national anthem for the kingdom of God. And it's um, immediately uh, preceded by a big shocker, Psalm 1, right? And so as we read Psalm 2 today, I've got it broken up into three sections, you need to know that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were actually regularly seen together as one psalm. So um, uh, I'm a huge fan of the the rock band uh, Queen, right? And, and, uh, you know, one of their songs I loved growing up was We Will Rock You, right? I'm not going to sing it, but you know the claps, right? You know the stomps, we will rock you, we will, we will, we will rock you, right? And then when you, when you listen to that as a sporting event, you get fired up, we're going to win, this is awesome. And then if you ever hear it on the radio, or you ever see it on like a a record album, uh, we actually have a record like album, um, like it immediately after we will rock you does what? Fades into, we are the champions, 
See, none of you knew that because we're in the Seattle area. Um, other places have championships, um, and so we get one every 40 years. Uh, and so, um, so Psalm 1 seamlessly fades into Psalm 2, and it's really important for us to understand how we see this. Psalm 2 is also uh, one of the most quoted psalms in uh, all of the New Testament. So if you're asking yourself, for the people of Jesus, for the disciples of Jesus, for those in the first century, when, when they were following Jesus, uh, when they were learning about Jesus, what was on their summer playlist? Psalm 2, because it's quoted so much in the New Testament. They were, they were listening to it all the time. And so as we come to the Psalms, though, anything that's sung in the Psalms is ultimately about Jesus. Jesus in Luke 24, um, after he's resurrected, is walking with disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, and he says, uh, he, going through all the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets was, was shorthand for the whole Old Testament, including the Psalms. Meaning as we look at this Psalm about a national anthem, about a king, that it's not about an abstract idea of kingship. It's about a specific king, and that king is Jesus. And so... While we are people that, that love independence, we have to recognize that the plot of God's kingdom is to lead and rule and care for his people through his son. And so there's a tension between us desiring independence and ultimately, I hope today, recognizing or declaring, if you will, declaring our dependence on the king rather than declaring dependence, independence from the king. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Psalm chapter 2. Uh, I've broken this up into three sections, verses 1 through 3, 4 through 9, and 10 through 12. Uh, let's read it and talk about it. Psalm 2 says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. All right, let's, um, let's stop here. Oh, sorry, it says this. Uh, yeah, let's stop here. So as I said, Psalm 1 and 2 uh, are these songs that fade right into each other. So if you back up a bit and you look at Psalm chapter one, right before that, verse six says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So God's laid out two paths. He said, hey, there's a way of righteousness that leads to flourishing in life. It leads to joy. Uh, it leads to identity. It leads to a settled, settled sense of self. It doesn't lead to shame. It doesn't lead to sin. It doesn't lead to destruction. He says, but there is another way and that way is wickedness, that way is evil, that way is opposed to the rule and reign of God in our lives. And that way, he says, will what? It will perish. So one path literally leads to life. The other path literally leads to death, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, materially, and ultimately physically. Ultimately, it leads to rejection of God and even wrath. Life, joy, flourishing, Good path, right? There's this other path. And so then immediately it fades into Psalm 2 and it begins to ask the question, so then why do the nations rage? Like, if there's two paths, why? Why, why are they upset about this? Like, it's, it, it's elementary simple, he's saying. Why would the nations rage? There's this transition between individual hearts 
and the more corporate and global identity of how humanity um, is led. And there's different tribes and nations and right people, ethnic groups, all sorts of different things. And they respond to the law of the Lord God on these two paths, righteousness or wickedness that leads to destruction. And it should be so easy. It says, why, why are they raging? Why are they getting together to plot to overthrow the king of the universe? Why are they plotting to overthrow God's plan? The reality is that inside of each one of us is ingrained with the understanding that there is a creator, that we are made, that we are not an accident, that we are not um, just cosmic particles that exploded together and then came from some ooze and then eventually like achieved consciousness. Like, hey, we did better than the ficus tree. Look at us. We evolved and we're awesome. No, we, we were designed. You were designed. You were created. We were created. And, and if you are created, that infers a creator. And nobody, no artist, no engineer, and God is both, creates purple, purposelessly. You were created for a purpose. We were created for a purpose. I was created for a purpose. And so either you as a created being are going to reflect and respond to the purpose that has been given to you with the dignity and respect and value of a fine craftsman who's made you and designed your life, or you will respond in rejection to that purpose. And so if you're wondering, like, why are we made? How are we designed? We were designed to be people that worship there's a reason that, you know, um, uh, you know, 12 hours from now, we're going to ooh and ah as, as um, all of our friends and neighbors uh, explode thousands of dollars of fireworks bought across, uh, you know, the, the uh, I-5, right? And our entire uh, neighborhoods are going to look like, you know, downtown Fallujah, right? You know, it's just going to be explosions everywhere. But we're going to ooh and ah because it's amazing. It's beautiful. We're made to worship. We're made to see and experience and taste and enjoy and respond with, that's amazing. And ultimately, we're made to worship God, to be in awe of God, to live lives in response to God who's grander than any fireworks display we could ever see, to reflect God's glory, to respond and respect God's leadership. And so, um, if you look at the plot of the Bible from rejecting the first commands of God in the garden to revolting in the wilderness, ultimately to the regicide, that's a fancy word that means killing of a king, um, of King Jesus on the cross, humanity's consistent response to the rule and reign of God in the world has been one not of worship and receiving, but of rage and rejection. And so... Humanity is constantly chosen to respond to God's good provision and purpose with rage over worship. And again, this goes back to the absolute beginning. Like God created everything, he created everything good. And humanity enters into the equation that God made and he, and he didn't like, like say, hey, uh, I'm sending you out. Um, you know, you better go find some place and figure something out. And he put them in a garden not refugees, citizens in a garden kingdom. And then the first vote happened. And the issue on the table, the item on the table was this. Are we going to respect and submit to the will and rule and reign of God? Or are we going to be diametrically opposed foes of God? 
And so humanity wrote a declaration. Right? Our nation was founded on a declaration. Humanity, if you will, wrote a declaration that kind of goes like this. We, the people of the garden, in an effort to form a more perfect union, declare our independence from the creator. And in doing so, based on Psalm 2 here, casting off the totalitarian restraints of his one oppressive law of refraining from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And since that time, we've been in rebellion, fighting a war against the creator. And so collectively, we form nations and systems and structures, all seeking independence from, not from tyranny, not from evil, but seeking independence from God. And so the promise of these systems is never like, hey, anyway, we're going to do this and it's going to lead to bondage. No, the promise is always what? Greater freedom. Greater liberty, greater flourishing. It says here that they're getting together. And in verse three, it says, let's burst the bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. They're, they're misunderstanding where freedom and flourishing comes from. And so we have to recognize that while we are individuals and you need to have an individual relationship with the Lord, that you and I and we are also part of people, part of a group of people, and so there's national and political and, and, and global things that happen on a scale to, to reorient our worship for joy. And so it says the nations rage. And, and I know that there's probably some of us that when we read, when the nations rage, you've got the nation you're thinking about. Oh yeah, Kim Jong, whatever, over North Korea for sure. France, they don't really rage, they just kind of surrender, right? You know, but, but you know, negatively. Right, you got your nation. Oh, Russia for sure raging. China, oh yeah, all those com communists over there with you know their iPhones, right, and TikTok. And then we're like, well, it says it doesn't say a few nations rage. It says the nations. We rage. United States of America rages. I I really hate to break it to you guys. I feel like I have to bring it up often though. But but it's our our country's not at the end of this book. There's a forever kingdom that far exceeds uh, any nation or country. And so um, uh, these countries, it says, all of the leaders get together, whether it's Egypt or Rome or Persia or North Korea or Canada or the U.S. And, and, and it says they arrange themselves with great intentionality for the purposes of what? It says that they're unified. And when I grew up in school, um, you, you know, unity was seen as this big value. And every time there's big political upheaval, right? We just had an election and one party won the election, one party didn't. And the party that wins always says, you know what we want? Unity. And it's always unity around whatever that party wants. And so in, in this case, there's great unity, but the unity that, that all these nations have, like, like, oh man, if we could all just, you know, buy the world a Coke and we could all just hold hands. And if you know that, that's a commercial from like even before I was born. But it's this idea, if all of humanity was just unified, then everything would be better. And here it's like, no, no, all humanity is unified. But it's unified in opposition to the God and the creator who made them. And so it says that they're conspiring together. 
The rulers take counsel together, right? This is a, a big you know, G20 summit, right? This is United Nations getting together, right? They're, they're doing joint pronouncements. They're making plans, right? And all of the unity, it's, it's, it's not Machiavellian. It's not a conspiracy. It's, it's actually pretty simple. Um, it, it's just, hey, people with leadership and influence, even our, in our own hearts, we have leadership and influence over our own hearts, we all just want to declare independence from God. We all believe that somehow that we can do it better. And it says here it's a group of effort. Right? If, if, if everybody was aligned and all worshiping Jesus and, and all following God and, and, and living lives of flourishing and love and kindness to one another, like, I mean, that would be pretty amazing, right? Um, but if you were the one person to stand apart from that, like, that'd be, feel pretty isolating. But it says here, the nations are together. And so um, we, uh, the day before that, our family watched, what was it, A Tomorrow War uh, with Chris Pratt. Uh, and, and it's like, um, there's these aliens in the future, uh, spoiler, right? You know, and, and, and they, they have to go to the future and fight these horrible, beastly alien things. Uh, high, high level cinema, uh, cinematography and great uh, film, awesome writing and acting. And, uh, anyway, um, but like the whole idea was in the future, all the nations get together to fight the evil white spikes. Uh, my kids go, were they called white claws? Like, no, that's another evil. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it comes around summertime and makes people make bad decisions. So, um, so it's, it's like, you know, they're all fighting together. All the nations are together. And when you're together and you got this big coalition, you're like, I think we can do something. I think we can overthrow the king and his anointed. We can run this show. You, if you know your Bibles, you look back in Genesis, all humanity gets together and what do they do? Build this amazing tower to sort of reach up to heaven and say, hey, we can do this whole thing without God. We can make the garden without the creator. We can have the kingdom without the king. And so everything that they're doing is in safety in numbers that there's intentionality around creating a culture that is opposed to the influences of God's purpose in our lives. And so when they seize this unity, the writer of this psalm, the writer of this song wonders, why would they bother to attempt to overthrow God? Don't they understand that it's all in vain? I mean, I love, there's just hope upon hope upon hope right in the first sentence. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Right away it starts off. It's not gonna work. I mean, just logically for a moment, if there's a creator who made everything and you're part of that everything and you're a created being who is finite, not infinite in power or, 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 or um, in life or anything like that, right? Like, how are you going to beat the one who made you? How are you going to beat the one that made the world? How are you going to beat the one that made the universe? Like, at a certain point, it, it does sound a bit absurd, and, and it's trying to even paint that picture. Why would they bother to do this? It's vain because there's only two paths. Either align with the king or be opposed to the king. And then it gets specific, it says they're trying to overthrow the king. They're also trying to be opposed to his anointed. That word anointed is where we get the idea for the word Messiah in the New Testament. It's saying that there is not just a king, but a savior king of God's people. So, so they're saying these people aren't just rejecting the idea of like a universal God or the force or spirituality. It's very, very specific 
They are unified, regardless of anything else that ties them together, they are unified in their opposition to the creator of the universe, who is engaged with the people of humanity specifically and exclusively through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So to be opposed to Jesus is, this psalm is saying, to be opposed to God. So you can't be like, well, I just believe in the God of love. You know, I believe in, in a God of kindness. Jesus is really exclusive. Actually, as I drove to church here today, I saw a, word, a, a banner at another church that said, uh, love isn't exclusive, it's inclusive. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. I understand in saying that how offensive that is. I believe one of the most offensive aspects of the Christian gospel is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the way and the truth and the life. That's how God has chosen to love and engage and serve his people. And so there's some people like, well, we're not opposed to Jesus. We like Jesus. We like Jesus the good teacher. Everybody likes Jesus the healer, right? Nobody's like, no healing. I don't like that, that, that healing stuff. Super, super excited about socialist Jesus that like, you know, gives all the bread and the fish and everything, right? Everybody loves that Jesus. He's giving out stimulus checks of bread and fish to everybody. Everybody loves that Jesus. See, Jesus can be anything to us and we're okay. He just can't be king because we want to be on that throne. We want to be in that role. And so it's not enough to just say you don't like God, but specifically they're saying it's, it's you don't like the way God has chosen to rule over us. He's leading his people through his son Jesus. So to be against Jesus is to be against God. And then what's interesting is you're like, he asks, why do the nations rage? What's driving this incessant idea to declare independence from God that that's going to lead to flourishing? And, and here's Here's what's driving it. They've recast God as the villain in the story. So back to Hamilton. I think you knew this was going there. Um, right? If you know the musical Hamilton, at a certain point, King George comes out as this character, right? The, the, the evil king of Britain, right? And, and he's ruling over the colonies, right? And, and he's, he's taxing their tea. And, and if, if they tax their whiskey, they're going to get more frisky, right? Like it's bad news bears all the way around. And this king, like he's royal and stately, but he's also kind of a clown. And, and ultimately he's like, he's like, hey, uh, I'm going to send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. I'm gonna kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. And you're like, this guy is super dysfunctional like our lights are right now. Okay, wow. Every week, okay. And so the reason humanity rages is we've recast the king of the universe as some evil, horrible, maniacal king that doesn't love his people. That's, that's vicious and evil. It says, says, oh my gosh, he's so oppressive in his bonds around us. We've got to cast off those shackles. There's no freedom and flourishing with this king. He's just taxing us. He's legalistic. He's evil. He's wicked. And so the, the reason they're fighting against the king is because they believe a lie that the king doesn't love them and that there's no consequences for rejecting the king. And again, this gets all the way back to the garden. 
Their reason for rebellion is a wrong understanding of who God is and what his rule looks like in our lives and in our world. And so they just believe an old and effective lie that, that we can do it better than God. Rejection of God's law and his anointed is not just a lack of acceptance. It says they're seeking to overthrow a yoke of oppression. Remember how the story started? Garden, food, naked and unashamed. And they're like, this is too tough. I, I don't like this. Has it gotten better? And so again, it's, it's an old lie that sin twists our view of God and his character where we believe that to be under the rule and authority of God in some sort of bondage is to be cast off. And so um, they consider life with God to be restrictive and oppressive. And so it says they one of the bonds burst apart and the cords cast away. And this gets back to the heart of sin, which is us desiring to have lordship over our own lives in ways that we're not intended to have. Don't hear me wrongly. You are an individual. We are individuals. You have desires and, and wills and, and preferences and all sorts of things and, and emotions. And, and many of those are gifts from the Lord to design you as a unique individual. But who's an ultimate authority over you? is not yourself, but is in fact the Lord. And so, it's God's desire and character to bring abundant life into joy. And so they've misunderstood where that comes from. And so they, they, they look around the world and we look around the world and we were, we're like, no, this, this, the song that the world sings is one of brokenness and sin and destruction. And like there's, 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 a, sad, there's a sadness in these songs and, and, and I don't like that. And, and so humanity collectively says, why is that? Oh, it must be because God's too oppressive. Rather than understanding that it's our sin that wraps us in chains, that places us in bondage. And so I want you to ask yourself, where have you misunderstood the character and nature of God? And how does an inaccurate understanding of God lead you to wrong conclusions about God, which leads to wrong responses to God? See, when we wanna talk about bondage and freedom, God's not the one who puts us in bondage, he's the one who brings freedom. Later in the Old Testament, there's a prophet named Hosea, and in Hosea chapter 11, verse 4, um, speaking from the Lord's perspective, it says, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love or bonds of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaw. I bent down to them and fed them. So the only bondage, the only bands, the only cords, the only chains that God places around us are ones of love and compassion, and even to the place where he says, I bent down to them, I condescend to them to feed and provide. That is a good God, that is a loving king. That is compassion and condensation uh, down to us to give us grace not waiting for us to achieve, not waiting for us to, to step up. Later in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus himself, we quote this often here, chapter 11, verse 28 and 30 says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, they're saying to follow the Lord is burdensome. 
To respond to God is going to be this, this horrible bondage. And all of Scripture points to life with the Lord, even in obedience to the Lord, is one of freedom, one of liberty, one of joy, one of flourishing. And so ultimately, with all their intentionality, with all their unity, their plotting is in vain. And while it seems successful for a while, right, you can walk in rejection of the Lord for a while. Countries, nations, cultures can walk away from the Lord and godly principles for a while. Ultimately, it will fail. And we get back to that first sentence, it will be in vain. Because while all the nations are conspiring together, counseling together, they're in the room where it happened, and, and God is ready to speak too. They've written out their declaration. They've sent the letter. God's got a response. And his response begins in verse four. It says this. This is God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Nations can counsel all they want. The Holy Trinity's gotten together and they've already made another decision that predates ours. And so the world leaders, they're together. They're asking how they can overthrow God, who they've recast as this evil emperor. And and I think what happens is we so easily forget who the good side of the conflict is. Oh, surely it's the lowly, downtrodden human is trying to fight against the evil, oppressive God. No, yeah, God is powerful, and God is loving, and God is good. All of the time, God is good. It's intrinsic to his nature and to his character. And so we think when we're unified, what could possibly stand in the way of us being united? And we forget the nature and strength of the one that we're plotting against. The rulers and authorities, right? You know, when, man, when, you're, when you feel like you're big time and you're in government or whatever, like you can feel pretty powerful, I imagine. Because in the context of other people, you are, but you're still, we're still just a created earthly being so we plan all we want, but it will be in vain. And, and so God responds to their plot. And, and what I love about how God responds is God's not like, oh no, the people are plotting. I did not see this coming. What am I supposed to do now? No, the Lord's like, hold the phone. They just sent a, sent a declaration of independence. Let me, let me look at that. That's hilarious. Wait, they, th- they think they're gonna, oh man, I, and, he, and he's laughing. And in some sense, he's mocking. You know, we'll get into that. He's mocking their plan and he's mocking their purpose. But God's not like an evil, maniacal dictator, like, ha, 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 I will overcome you. It's like, he cares about their hearts. So it's laughter mocking their plan and their purpose, but there's grief around the condition of their hearts, around the condition of our hearts, around the condition of your heart in rejection or rebellion to God. And so he's ridiculing the plan right? Because the plan is to overthrow God's authority. And again, this just seems kind of silly, right? What resources are we going to marshal in the universe to overthrow the God who created the universe? 
And then he's also mocking their purpose. He's saying, wait, they want to declare independence? Why do they want to do it? Because they think it's going to get better? Let me get this straight. We're going to declare, declare our independence from the God who invented chocolate, sex, and sunsets and think that somehow that's going to lead to more pleasure, joy, and flourishing. See, all of those things were God's idea as gifts to us for enjoyment, to steward all those things, to then then give us minds that are creative, to cultivate, to, to build boats, to write songs, to make art, to build buildings, to have relationships with one another, to have family, all these things, these are all God's ideas. And so it's just so foolish to think that somehow declaring our independence from that God is gonna lead us to greater joy. He's laughing at their pride and it's not the effect it's having on them. And so he's like, okay, you guys have had a chance to speak. Now, you know, you guys have, you guys have spoken. Now it's my turn in the cabinet battle, right? God's got a counsel, he's got a plot, he's got a purpose. And he said, let me tell you what's gonna happen. I'm gonna terrorize your plans of rejecting me so that you understand how foolish they are. So that you can have the full assurance of their failure. And again, this is, this is not an evil dictator just saying it's my way or the highway. This is God saying, if you think you're gonna build something that leads to death and destruction, it's not gonna last for eternity. I won't let it because I'm a good and loving God. And so ultimately, evil will be defeated. Ultimately, what does oppress will be overcome. Ultimately, what places us in bondage, we will be granted freedom. Ultimately, our sin will be dealt with and taken care of. Our shame will be no more. I will not let those things win, God says. And so he's decreeing back to them a rebuke that the plans of the leaders conspiring against him is gonna be thwarted because God God says, I already got a leader. All you kings and rulers and nations, whether that kingdom is just the size of your family or the size of your own heart, you want to be king? Too bad, seat's taken. I've already placed Jesus on the throne, he says. You're not fighting some weird game of thrones to try to like take an empty seat and see who wins. Jesus is already on the throne. The only time he came off the throne is to come to earth to suffer and die for us and is now risen, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning now, and ultimately all will experience his rule and reign upon his return with the new heavens and a new earth. Jesus is king. The role's already taken. So I want you to ask yourself, where does your planning for your life, where does your plotting for your life just need to be interrupted for a moment? and replaced with God's plot and plan for your life? Where do you need to consider what's driving your desires and ask themselves if they're aligned with the Lord or or if they're just not healthy and they will ultimately need to fail? Because while they're plotting, God has a plan too. He says it's gonna be carried out personally, right? He says this anointed, right? 
is the identity of the king. The king is going to be God's own son. And so this psalm is written in the Old Testament. This is written uh, you know, in the context of David's role as a human uh, king. And yet God made a covenant with David that his throne Lineage, heritage would never be empty. And, and the promise of that is actually the promise fulfilled in Jesus' arrival, in Jesus as that king. Jesus is born from the line of David, a king. Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem, the city of David, the king. We sometimes even sing a song, and you see oftentimes in the um, New Testament, people coming up to Jesus and calling him what? The son of David. It's an homage and a um, acknowledgement of Jesus' role as God's chosen king and anointed to be the savior king of his people. And then we get to this uh, verse here, verse seven, you're my son, today I've begotten you or today I'm pleased with you. And we see that right in the, the baptism of Jesus in the New Testament where the heavens open up and God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Yes, that that gives Jesus identity as son of God, but it's also declaring his purpose and role and office as king of God's people. And so Jesus is God, Jesus is king, and these two truths, they, they require us to either have reception and response in humility and worship or rejection. So ultimately, our rage is fruitless and Jesus' reign is forever. So we see in the New Testament the clearest overt opposition to the lordship of God and the authority of his people. I mean, just again, consider this scene in Psalm 2, all these nations getting together to conspire to overthrow the king. What happens when Jesus rolls into Jerusalem? The uber-religious, the kind of faux king Herod of Israel and the Roman government, right? All these people were opposed to one another. Oh, but they're unified against what? Jesus, and they conspire together, and they plot together. We're going to overthrow this horrible reign of this carpenter who's going around in the poor areas, and he's healing people, and he's feeding people, and he's gas forgiving their sins. How are we going to have control over people if we're not dealing with the shame of their sin? We're the religious people. Shame is all we got. How are we going to control people? He raised his friend from the dead. The Roman government can't do anything about that. We gotta overthrow the bondage of this King Jesus. We gotta plot, I got it. We'll just nail him to a cross. We'll execute him. Game over. His body dead, murdered, buried, his influence over, and we're never gonna hear a word about Jesus again. Long live Caesar. And their plot was in vain. We don't worship a dead king. We worship a risen king. Three days later, Jesus rose. Jesus is alive. Jesus has ascended to heaven. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. Over whatever circumstances you have going on in your life where you feel powerless or weak or small, know there is a king on the throne who knows everything about your life and loves you better than you even love yourself. And he says, the nations will be his. He will possess the whole earth. He says, he'll break them, rule them. Another translation actually says, shepherd them. 
So you're like, oh man, rod of iron, that sounds terrible. Well, no, Jesus is strong. Jesus is a warrior king, yes. We need warrior king Jesus because if evil is strong, we need a king who can overcome it. And Jesus is also a loving shepherd who shepherds us with kindness and leads us to streams of pure and clean water so that we can have rest. The only way you can have rest is when you know there's a king big enough to provide security and stability. The only way we can have rest and joy is to know that evil will ultimately be overcome. The only way we can fight for justice and even be discontent with injustice is knowing that there is a just king who will bring final justice for all. We need warrior Jesus. We need King Jesus and we need shepherd Jesus. And we need Jesus who's a king who's also also our friend who brings peace, who brings stability, who annihilates evil, but then also provides a place and a space for peaceful people. And so force is only needed to meet opposition. He says he's going to break and dash them to pieces. that's, That's breaking apart and destroying that which is opposed to God for the purposes of greater flourishing and greater joy. And so until Jesus returns... We've been commissioned to go and tell all the nations to make disciples of this world and kingdom. And, and, and I love that Jesus, you know, you can, there's like, this is like a national anthem. Jesus also gave us like a national creed, if you will, or a way that we're supposed to pray. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then we pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that prayer, what we're also praying is not my will, but your will be done. Not my kingdom flourishing, but me as a citizen and servant of your kingdom, knowing that it will lead to flourishing. It does lead to joy. Pledging our allegiance to Jesus as our king is a rejection of us as kings of our own lives. And so, We're given a way to respond here in these last two verses as we close. Verses 10 through 12 says this. Given the power and might of God to overthrow and thwart the plan of of evil and that which opposes God, he says this. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. What's our response? What's your response to Jesus as king? How should we view the unity around us of that which is opposed to God. Should we have fear? I mean, man, there's times where cultural shifts and political shifts, like, they are fear-inducing. Oh, man, we're, we're so sexually confused. Man, we're, we, we reject basic reality in so many different ways. How, how, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? We don't have to fear. All the plotting's in vain. All the rejection and resistance is in vain. For we see ourselves 
as kings of our own domain, then, then yeah, you're going to get crushed. Yeah, you might be able to make it through your life well, but there's, there's another scene that happens. Well, there's the, the room where it happens where, where they're all counseling and conspiring against God, and then there's the, the throne room of heaven. There's another scene that you need to be ready for. And it's the one where you individually are going to meet your creator face to face. And a judgment will be made on your life. And I hate to break it to you. None of us will be found perfect or worthy. There is no refuge from the justice of God. There's no refuge from the wrath of God for sin. But there is refuge in God. There is refuge in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we're warned, he says here, like, I'm giving you a chance. You don't have to go down the path that leads to destruction. Be wise, he said. Choose the right path. Find and seek your refuge, not in your own kingdom, but in the king who rules over all other kingdoms. Quit trying to to muster up and, and, and somehow declare your independence and think it leads to your freedom and joy. Rather, humbly submit and declare your dependence on the king who is so kind, so merciful. When it says kiss the son, that's, like that's a pledge of allegiance. So yeah, we, we accept Jesus as savior of our lives, but we also pledge our allegiance to him as king. That's why if you're not a Christian, we invite you to get baptized. That baptism is a, is a pledge of allegiance to Jesus as your king. Where the old you who lived in rebellion to God is dead and buried in the water just like Jesus was buried in the tomb. And the new you who lives for Jesus by the grace and mercy of Jesus is risen out of the water just like Jesus has risen from the tomb. It's where we find our primary identity. And so yes, God bless America. Yes, God loves the world. He loves the world so much he sent his only son Jesus so that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Pledge your allegiance to that kingdom. Pledge your allegiance to that king. All of this warning is for our repentance so that we can respond, he says, with, with humility, with service. And you got words in there like fear and trembling. And like he's like, you know what? Yeah, God is a good God. But don't forget how big and mighty and powerful God is. That word fear is actually one of reverence. The word rejoicing with trembling, that means you should be so overwhelmed with the awesomeness of God, it can make your knees quake sometimes as you consider the might, the power, the beauty, the majesty of our God and King. And so why reject if it's only gonna be in vain? All of your worship, all of your allegiance isn't even to yourself, it's to be the King of Kings. And so where Psalm 1 begins with Right? Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That it's, it's saying that there's blessing in avoiding sin. Psalm 2 ends with the blessing found for all those who take refuge in Jesus. Understand, spiritually, apart from Jesus, we're all just refugees. And we've been invited, not into some lame refugee camp, into the palace itself 
full citizens of the kingdom where there's no refuge from him, but there's only refuge in him, theologian Derek Kinder says. And so this refuge is a profound place of blessing with a new life. There's this scene uh, in Hamilton where George Washington is singing one last time and he says that, that I want to sit under my own vine and fig tree and he gets that from, from um, the prophets to say, hey, that, that's, what, that's what life with God ultimately leads to is you in a place of shade and rest and provision and joy. Declaring dependence on the king doesn't lead to bondage. It leads to greater freedom and flourishing and joy where we're ultimately a place of rest under our own vine and fig tree. And we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.